You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, hematologist, and a volunteer with the LLS. I want to thank all of you for being with us and joining us on this episode, which I think is going to be really interesting. Today, we'll be discussing barriers to care for LGBTQI plus patients, the impact of discrimination on health outcomes, guidelines for best practices for providers, and important tips on creating a respectful and sensitive environment for all of our patients. We're going to be joined by Dr. Chastity Burroughs-Walters, who is Vice President of Education, Clinical, and Patient Communication at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Chastity, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Miller. So, I want to start out by asking, and this is, I think, for all the listeners and for me, if we can make the next half hour a judgment-free zone. Of course. All right. And the reason I bring it up is these are important and sensitive topics. And I found as I was preparing that some of the things that I need help with as a provider, my colleagues may too. So I just want to make this an opportunity for me and for all the providers listening to be able to express all this. And I had a feeling you'd agree to it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think a really important part of the process is having a safe space to have these conversations. And that's why things like this and trainings, things that are live are so effective because you need that safe space to practice, right? That's how we get comfortable. Absolutely. So let's start out with a couple really basic things that I think are important. LGBTQI+. Can you give us your definition? Sure. You've probably heard lots of other versions. There's sometimes an A, there are sometimes additional letters as well. And what we're really talking about, if we want to view this from an academic perspective, you'd see the term sexual and gender minorities. So the LGB, we're talking about people who are lesbian, gay, or bisexual, people who have attractions, romantic, physical, both, to people either of the same gender or sometimes of more than one gender. There are many more sexual orientations that don't get captured in that LGB. For example, someone who's pansexual might be attracted to a person of any gender. We do have to limit that alphabet somewhere, right? And we'll talk a little bit about how the terminology tends to make some of us very, uh, it feels daunting, right? It, It feels like so much to learn. How can I wrap my head around it? The T refers to transgender, and a person who is transgender is a person whose sex they were assigned at birth, so that sex on the original birth certificate, does not align with the gender that they are, with who they are as a person. Transgender in itself is even an umbrella term for many different genders. You may think of someone who is gender non-binary, meaning they don't conform to that sort of societal norm of being either a man or a woman. Someone who's non-binary, they may fall somewhere along that spectrum. They may even move back and forth, or they may fall outside of that spectrum altogether. 
The Q is really interesting, and I often talk about this when I talk about language and the language we use. The Q in some circles stands for questioning, but really the way that we use it most typically is around the word queer. And so for folks who were around maybe 50s and 60s, even 70s, queer was really considered a a pejorative term. It was a slang. It was. Very negative. Yep. Yeah. And and what we've seen, though, is that younger generations have really reclaimed the term as their own. You'll see the word queer used to define folks who may be a sexual minority, meaning lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, demisexual, etc., or someone who is gender diverse, whether they're transgender, gender fluid, some other gender. It's really a term that's used largely to encompass a, a lot of different folks, very broad and umbrella term. And then the one that we've seen crop up arguably most recently is the I, and the I stands for intersex. Those are folks who are born with sexual characteristics that don't necessarily fit those typical definitions of, oh, it's a boy, it's a girl. They may have variances with either their internal or external anatomy. There may be hormonal differences. Typically, it's often caught first based on genital, external genitalia, because that's what we see when the baby is delivered. We are seeing a lot more attention, I would say, to folks who are intersex. There has been some research to come out to say we need to acknowledge folks who are intersex. What had been happening for many, many years is that decision was made for you. There would be an endocrinologist who might get called in and may say, okay, well, you're mostly female, and so we'll assign you female. You're mostly male, we'll assign you male. And there have been some folks who've come out to say, oh, I wish I was given some time to really figure that out for myself. And so there's a growing awareness. What's really interesting is it is such a wide array of people and a wide array of just genetic composition that can happen that we suspect that the number of people who are actually intersex probably mirrors the number of redheads in the world. And so it's not as unusual as we really think. Well, so first say thank you. I think that's a great summary. And I'm reminded of something else, which is gender and sexuality are different. Can you say a little bit more about, again, the difference between sexuality and gender? And then I really want to ask you some questions about how do we ask people? Do we ask people? Yeah, so this comes out a lot. So oftentimes when I'm doing training, sometimes people are embarrassed to ask the questions. So that's why I do these things, because a lot of people have these questions. If my patient's transgender, does that mean they're gay? My first, and you'll hear me say the word assumptions a whole lot in all likelihood because it tends to come up, but we don't know based on someone's gender what their sexual orientation is. And that's even if they're cisgender. So a cisgender person is a person whose sex assigned at birth aligns with their gender. So for example, I was assigned female at birth. I identify as a woman. I'm a cisgender woman. Your gender is whatever your gender is. Now your sexual orientation, it refers to who you're attracted to. Gender's not a piece of that. It's, am I attracted to people of the opposite gender? Could I be attracted to someone of any gender or maybe only of the gender opposite of mine if I believe in gender being binary? They're really very distinct. 
If someone says, well, my patient's transgender, can you tell me if he's gay? And my answer is, no, you need to ask, who are you attracted to? What is your sexual orientation? And so I don't know what the stats even are. I've seen lots of transgender people who are straight. I've seen lots of transgender people who are gay, who are pan. The only way you can know is to ask. I'm sure we'll get to talk about data collection. And so there is a small amount of growing literature on data collection. But for now, I'll just stick to the conversations because of the way you asked me the question, Dr. Miller. These could be organic questions that come up as part of the conversation. So if you're there in clinic and someone comes in and they present with someone, you can say, welcome. My name is Dr. Barros Walters. My pronouns are she, her. How shall I address you? You allow the person to give you their chosen name, and then you might say, who do you have with you? And then they may say, depending on their comfort level, Tim, and you don't get any more information than that because they want some time to make sure it's a safe space. Or you may have someone who says, this is Tim and he's my boyfriend, or this is Tim and Tim's pronouns are they, them, and I'm Pan. Um, It does take a little bit of time to get people to open up verbally. I'm sure we'll talk about data because that's something that's always on my mind, but there are reasons why there are best practices around how to systematically collect that information. I have to say thank you because I was going to ask you, how do you ask? I've spent a good deal of my career, and I think many of my colleagues too, not asking about gender, making assumptions, and certainly not asking about sexuality. So I want to repeat, and I want to see if I got the words right, but I'm Dr. Ken Miller. My pronouns are he, his. And what is the follow-up question there? And what is your name? And what are your pronouns? Because otherwise, it seems like an awkward question. Yeah, and you have to practice it, right? So you did it once. Once you say it a few times, it really does become pretty easy to say. And I think that's true of a lot of this. When we talk about pronouns, I don't want to make assumptions about the folks listening to this podcast. So we're talking about pronouns. So, you know, pronouns, those little words we learned about in, I don't know when, maybe elementary school, the way we refer to people when they're not right there in front of us. And as clinicians, we use pronouns a lot, right? Because we talk about people a lot, particularly in oncology, very multidisciplinary. It's necessary for me to talk with colleagues across many different specialties. And so it's likely that I'm to refer to someone using pronouns. Typically, someone who is a woman, their pronouns would be she, her. For a man, he, him. We're seeing a tremendous amount of folks who have claimed the singular use of the word they as a pronoun. Someone might say, my name is Jamie, my pronouns are they, them. And I find with clinicians, that's something that I like to practice a lot. And we'll sometimes even go through a little exercise where you have to have a conversation with the person to your right. And when you're doing that, keep using the pronoun they. It's funny because if we don't think about it, we do it all the time. You know, you might say, oh, they left that over there, or when we don't know who the person is. You're right. You're right. It's just that when we're accustomed to talking directly with a person or directly about a known person, it feels very different. Yes. There is one more set of pronouns that I'll raise to your attention. That is like Shijir. And that is a set of pronouns that are used for a person who does not identify as a man or a woman. They're really gender neutral pronouns. 
admittedly, even though I do a lot of this work, I far more commonly see they, them, but definitely there are folks who use those and either even other pronouns in addition. But I would say those are the most common sets. Let me comment on how helpful it is because honestly, the language is a barrier. So having some tools is very useful. Let's shift into the cancer environment and talk about some of the barriers to care for the patients that we're seeing, the people that we're seeing who are LGBTQI. What do I need to know as a cancer care provider about screening, about uh, early diagnosis? And then let's talk in a little while about treatment and survivorship. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say when we think about barriers for LGBTQI plus folks, I mean, for a long time, we talked about the primary barrier being lack of insurance. We know that there are some Mm -hmm. socioeconomic issues around that. And fortunately, I feel like we have to talk about that less now, especially since the Affordable Care Act. With that, the number of people who are uninsured has dropped significantly. Still not equal, but it has definitely dropped. For the transgender community, it still does remain an issue, again, largely to do with unemployment, higher rates of poverty, and so on. But even having insurance doesn't guarantee access to health care. So people have difficulty finding health care providers who are both clinically and culturally knowledgeable about LGBTQI health. And many times they end up in systems where maybe no such providers are found. Sometimes there's overt discrimination that happens, and sometimes there's prejudice, sometimes hostility, and even refusal of care, even in this day and age. But even more often, I would say those barriers are more subtle. So personally, I really believe that assumptions are the greatest barrier to care. Heteronormativity and cisnormativity. Now, that is the belief that being heterosexual, okay, being attracted to someone of the opposite gender, and cisgender, so again, having your gender align with the sex that you were assigned at birth, that's the only normal way to be. And many of us don't do this on purpose. It's just we're humans and your brain tends to look around and what you have the most experience with, that's the basis for your assumptions. And so part of our work needs to be to free ourselves from that. Now, these assumptions can happen at the system level. So for example, forms that only allow an M or an F or they leave room specifically for mother's name and father's name. I'm sure we can talk about lots of other examples of those system barriers. And then those barriers also happen at the clinician level. We make assumptions based on the bulk of our experiences. So I mentioned, you know, what about that person that's coming in? Do we assume that relationship between two people? If I walk in with someone, are you going to assume that that person is my sister and not my wife? You can ask the question. I respect that we'll talk about treatment, but assuming the type of care a person might want does come up. So for example, in someone who may be non-binary or transgender, assuming that a person would want breast reconstruction or neglecting to discuss the fertility implications of treatment for someone because there's an assumption that they're not having, it's a woman who's not having a sex with a man and they don't need the uterus anyway. So we don't need to talk about that. What happens is these assumptions erode or even negate, you know, any possibility of trust. Got it. So again, these are topics that don't always get discussed with heterosexual and cisgender patients. 
you have the baseline problem and then it's compounded in this population is what I think I'm hearing. That's absolutely true. I mean, there have been lots of studies around this, but clinicians are not all comfortable talking about sex. And, you know, again, as you say, that's in general. Now when we start talking about what does sex mean for you? What kind of sex do you have? And then to get into treatment, this causes a real problem for us because a lot of the educational resources, and my background, by the way, is in patient education, a lot of the educational resources that we see, they do tend to be written for a person who is having, for example, penile vaginal sex. And so to say, what does sex mean for you, opens up a whole sort of can of worms, if you will, for a clinician who doesn't have a place to go. It's not like there's a pamphlet right there. Like, this is how you talk about having, I don't know, anal receptive sex after having radiation to the prostate. It doesn't exist. And unfortunately, a big reason it doesn't exist is because we don't have evidence. So even though you have many people like me who spend a lot of time talking about sex, a lot of time trying to think about how to integrate this information into patient education materials, but there's no evidence because we don't have the data, so it hasn't been studied. As an oncologist or as a surgeon, I hear, well, I don't feel comfortable talking about this because I don't know what to say because there's no data. Right, right. I'm going to push back a little bit, only from the point of view that, I mean, obviously we want to be data-driven, but there's always going to be topics that we don't have data on. So let me ask you, what are the resources for clinicians Yeah. So there are a lot of great organizations out there. I'm really fond of the National LGBT Cancer Network. Um, They have a library, they have articles, they do webinars, videos, and they do a lot for both clinicians and patients, which is really nice. They have a, a whole training module available for clinical staff. And then they also have, for example, directories of LGBT welcoming cancer screening facilities, cancer treatment facilities. So that's certainly one place. The National LGBT Cancer Project is another one great resource for cancer survivor support and advocacy. It's a nonprofit. They have an online support group community called Out With Cancer, really helpful for patients. And I think that peer-to-peer support for patients is really important. And so that's why I really wanted to call attention to that. You can also find resources on the LLS website at lls.org forward slash OHO. And that OHO is Other Helpful Organizations. You'll often find, particularly in the survivorship area, say, for example, a man comes in with prostate cancer and is asking for a support group, you may give that person a support group. And, you know, then I've truly seen this. The caregiver, the person's partner goes in, it's a group of women. And the social worker running the group says, oh, this group is for caregivers, not for patients. And now you're the person saying, well, I am the caregiver. My husband has prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. We want to think about like, you know, let's make sure that we're really looking for some support groups that might really allow caregivers and patients alike to feel comfortable. 
And there's certainly organizations like the LGBT National Help Center who can really help folks to get through some things. And then the other place that offers a lot of training really for clinicians, but is an important resource, I think, for patients to know about is the Human Rights Campaign. They have the Health Equity Index, really sort of a benchmarking tool. It's really the national benchmarking tool that evaluates healthcare facilities, policies, and practices related to the equity and inclusion of LGBTQ patients, visitors, and employees. You can go on the Human Rights Campaign website and you can see all of these. I think they evaluated about 2,000 in 2022 different healthcare organizations to see where they rate. That can be really a useful resource to see. Is the center that I'm thinking about going to committed to taking care of people like me? And their clinicians can also find trainings through the Health Equity Index. So it's really a great resource. Excellent. Thank you. Let's go through a a journey of a patient, let's say a woman who is cisgender, a lesbian who is partnered. We'll make it the journey of breast cancer. Some of the things that I've heard brought up in terms of the patients with cancer, whether it be blood cancers or solid tumors, some of the issues they face are isolation, perhaps a lack of extended family. What are some of the other barriers that you hear patients talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to think about is the idea of families of choice. When we talk about families of choice, we're talking about, particularly with LGBTQI plus folks, the people in their lives may not be blood relatives for a number of reasons. In some cases, they may be completely estranged from their biological family. And what people tend to do is they form circles around them of people who are like them and who care for them. And it's exceedingly important to be aware of that because these are the folks that you want to invite in the room. No one should go through cancer alone, whether it's that first visit, that first consult. You know, you work in this world, Dr. Miller, who's ready to hear all of the information that you're giving? No one. Nobody. Nobody. I always say, come in with a person and come in with a pen and a piece of paper because this is going to be a lot of information. And there was a a wonderful study done years ago by Liz Margulies, who had done some interviews. And I recall one of the participants saying that she went through the experience of her cancer care alone as a lesbian woman because she didn't feel it was safe. She thought she would be judged by coming in with her woman partner. And I mean, that is just so incredibly disheartening. It is. right. So we want to be very welcoming to having people in the room. That's certainly one thing. I think another thing is we talked a little bit a few minutes ago about making assumptions about care. We had done a study at Memorial Sloan Kettering a few years ago of healthcare providers' attitudes, knowledge, and beliefs around LGBTQ plus people. And what we found were a lot of people tended to say, well, I feel like I don't really have to ask because I treat everyone the same. And then when we looked in the literature, we found, wow, a lot of people say that. And I don't think it's coming from a place of anything malicious. I think that what it's meaning is I'm not going to treat someone unfairly because they tell me that they're transgender or that they're bisexual. But we can't treat everyone the same because everyone is not the same. Everyone is unique. 
we're all a lot of different things, sure. right? And so be open. What's important to you as a lesbian woman, as you start your breast cancer journey? Are you a black lesbian woman, for example, maybe whose hair has been a huge part of your life? Like, is that a place we want to focus on? Do we want to talk about sex? Do we want to talk about what sex is for you? Are your breasts important in that? Are you a person who wishes you never had breasts and as awful as it is to have cancer, feel like, well, if I can look at a bright side, it's hard to find one, but I don't have to have these anymore. And I've heard these words come from women. Yep, yep. So it's really about individualizing care, which is what we want to do anyway. It's just that sometimes we're not as comfortable having these conversations. Memorial Sloan Kettering is in New York City, and we definitely see a lot of, again, I'll use that academic term, sexual minorities, and increasingly a number of non-binary and transgender folks. But that's not true everywhere in the country. If you're only seeing someone who's maybe gender expansive, sort of another term for gender diverse, someone who's gender expansive once a year, people tend to kind of freeze. And I'd say just stop for a moment, relax, and just remember this is a person just like the last person you talked with. And you want to get to know this person and what's important to this person and allow them to tell you. You know, I think sometimes sitting in a room with a new patient or even not a new patient, but if I ask such and such question, this patient, this person is going to be offended. I mean, honestly, what I've seen over so many years now is that firstly, if we ask a question someone doesn't want to talk about, they don't. I mean, they'll twist a different path or they'll just say, geez, I really don't want to talk about it. But so often it opens up important and conversations that are connections between the clinician and the patient because we're much more alike than we are different, at least my own editorial. That's right. You know, I'm reminded that when any of us go to a healthcare setting for ourselves, for our loved ones, or our patients come to see us, I refer to it as sort of the luggage we carry. And the luggage means what's been our life experiences, both in and outside of healthcare. So let me ask you that for our LGBTQ patients, what's some of the baggage, the luggage, the life experiences that they're carrying with them as they enter the exam room? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, so for much of the LGBTQI plus community, it's not just about even what happened in the healthcare setting. For many people, it's even about adverse childhood experiences, right? So that concept transcends LGBTQI people, but really an adverse childhood experience is any traumatic experience that happened to a person before they were 18, but it goes on to affect their life. So when you think about sexual orientation and gender, these are things that tend to come out at a vulnerable point in your life before the age of 18. So they might be things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, substance abuse in the household, mental illness, incarceration, etc. But research demonstrates that somewhere around 40% of LGBTQ people have experienced at least four adverse childhood experiences. And then when we look at transgender people specifically, it's over 60%. These are often people who have already had a whole lot happen in their lives before the age of 18, and these have lasting impact on health as well as education, job potential, things that also impact health. So then you're starting to see there, like things are already accumulating for LGBTQI plus persons. Health is it's not just a result of the choices you make as an individual, it's the environment, 
and these other experiences in that environment. And these may be negative experiences for these groups of folks. Even if a person hasn't had a negative experience themselves, I think you'll find that pretty much everyone, if not everyone, knows someone who has had a negative experience. Yeah. And so those social and system and individual level barriers we talked about at the beginning, they don't just go away. People bring in all of that luggage. They're starting at a place of trauma, of almost hypervigilance. And so these little cues that we're not thinking about, the sideways glances, the unnecessary medical questions that transgender people in particular sometimes get, like, oh, what parts do you have? Did you have the surgery? You know, there is no the surgery. Is it a whisper? Do they notice, oh, like this person came in and now someone's whispering to a colleague? That all codes and it just adds up. People have years of experiencing this, and it's informing their fears, their expectations, their concerns about discrimination and mistreatment. Eventually, this accumulates enough that they end up either delaying or even foregoing care altogether. And that care might be primary care, it might be cancer screening, it might be cancer treatment. Yeah, thank you. It's so important to remember that someone's reaction to a question may reflect issues far different than what was intended. So thank you. I want to ask about guidelines. I think very much what we do now compared to perhaps the start of my career many years ago is guideline driven. So what would be your thoughts and recommendations in terms of customizing both uh, screening guidelines and perhaps treatment and survivorship guidelines to account for the special needs of LGBTQI patients. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So we'll start with screening guidelines. The general rule of thumb is screen by organ. If you've got the organ, screen as you would according to that organ. The thing is there's a lot of information out there about cancer screening, but it often doesn't use gender inclusive language. And so I may not realize if I'm a non-binary person or a transgender person that that screening guideline applies to me. So using gender inclusive language in cancer screening guidelines is important not only for conveying accurate information, but for creating a sense of welcoming and acceptance. Right. Understand that many people might be worried about how they're going to be treated. They might be more worried about how they're going to be treated than if you find something when they go in to have the scan. So if you think about a transgender man who still has a cervix and needs to walk into a facility that is pink, you know, why that needs to be, I don't know, right? Clearly it doesn't need to be, but walks into this facility and is told to put on a pink gown and has to lie there and open his legs to reveal a part of an anatomy that does not at all feel like part of his body. How just absolutely traumatic that is. You know, we need to do all that we can to really help people to know not only what they need to be screened for, but what are the ways that you can be screened? What are some places that you can go in, say, a geographical area where people can feel comfortable having those screenings? So certainly with cancer screening, there's a lot. Again, it is organ-based. The sources that I typically go to for any kind of treatment or screening recommendation for gender diverse patients would be WPATH or actually UCSF has a wonderful website. They have a transgender care center there, but those are both 
both great resources for understanding what are the current guidelines around treatment and cancer screening. They're not specific to cancer, so a lot of it is around hormonal treatment, gender-affirming surgeries and hormones, but those things become very important to understand when you're caring for a person with cancer who maybe either had some of those procedures, are still having procedures, or still taking hormones, or who have had some sort of affirming surgery, because it's really important to understand the anatomy. What do I need to look for in a neovagina? right? Those cells are going to be different. And so it often ends up being a partnership with someone who's providing that gender affirming care and the oncologist, for example. And finally, I wanted to ask you about collecting data on forms, whether it be on gender or sexuality. And I want to get your recommendations on it. What are some of the good features of collecting the data and what are some of the negatives? I think the positives of collecting data really are around giving us the information that we need to make LGBTQI plus people visible. And until they become visible, and I'm saying this as a scientist, until they become visible, we can't identify what the issues are. You and I saw this, Dr. Miller, what was it, maybe 15 years ago or so, when we really started uniformly collecting data on race and ethnicity. And we thought, oh, why do we need to ask that? We feel uncomfortable asking those questions. Are people going to think that I'm going to treat them differently based on how they answer? Now that's become something that we all answer all the time. It's very similar. I think in order to make the issues known, we need to make them visible. And with regard to those, the downside of it, I do think that there is a downside to labeling someone. There are stereotypes that come along with this. Remember, you know, this is still data. You still need to talk with your patient and know your patient and have those conversations. So it's really at the population health level that the data are more helpful. I think the only other downside is that, as we kind of alluded to at the top of this program, the language is complex that we use, right? And it's ever evolving. I mean, I could probably name 30 different sexual orientations for you. It's always evolving. And so that makes it a challenge when it comes to data, right? Because then we end up, do we get so granular? But then, you know, at what point are we collapsing? And then we run into issues where our N, right, our number of participants, say, in research or in some large data study that we're doing in aggregate, it's not going to be large enough if we don't collapse it. And so just take LGBTQI, for example. We said those are very different things. The L, the G, the B, those are sexual orientations. The T is gender. The I is that idea of, of intersex, right? Sexual characteristics. And all of those have very different experiences. The experience of someone who's transgender is very different than the experience of a gay man who comes in. And, you know, you can continue to dissect that. The experience of a gay man may be very different than the experience of a bisexual woman who is married to a man, right? So it's really the necessity of data is just paramount right now. I know that we all need to be critical thinkers. We need to make decisions in the absence of evidence, no doubt. But really, it's a cycle, Dr. Miller. So when there's no data, there's no funding, right? Because you don't have enough data to make a case. When there's no funding, there's no research. When there's no research, there's no evidence. And when there's no evidence, 
we kind of get into that awkward place where, okay, I'm going to make the best decision I can, but I sure would feel more confident making it if I had something to back me up. And we need data to intervene and to sort of, I think, stop that cycle. Incredibly well said. So thank you. I think that's a great argument for just what you're talking about data and continuing to improve the quality of the care that we offer. I want to thank all of you for listening to this informative episode. Really such an interesting topic. And I also want to take the opportunity to thank Dr. Chastity Burroughs-Walters for such an interesting and again, important and nuanced conversation. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for your work, Dr. Miller. For our listeners, if you enjoyed this program and for a listing of this program and all of our other healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.